Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your lies. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day and welcome back to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations at ANU. And with me, as is customary, is the wonderfully insightful political scientist, Dr Maria Taflaga also from the School of Politics and International Relations. Hi, Maria. Hello, Mark. Hello, everyone. And a regular guest who can never be too regular for our liking is Professor Frank, Frank Bongiorno from the ANU's School of History. Frank, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Mark. And Happy New Year if it's not too late to do that. I know. It's I a- think it might be, actually. I saw <laughs> someone getting quite irate about this the other day on... Uh, on social media somewhere saying that, you know, sorry, you've surrendered the right once you get past about the second week of January to uh, to talk about the new year. And I think maybe even if that's a bit tight, second, third week of... Yeah. of uh, oh, what rubbish, February. what rubbish. Well, happy, really? Valentine, happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> now, we're actually pretty much the same crew, as you would know, that wound up the year in 2021. The year, of course, that was supposed to be better than 2020, but wasn't. Uh, and since our last show in mid-December, a bit of a shambolic show it was too, good fun, Omicron has ravaged the community, the polity, and many people's sanity, I think it's fair to say. Maria, without the assistance of a ukulele, perhaps you can tell us what happened politically. I mean, uh, it's been a, I'm not asking you to go through the, uh, you know, the events, but... Um, it was, a, it, was, it, was, it was pretty much not the way Scott Morrison was hoping to be retooling for an election year, was it? No, it definitely wasn't the hot facts summer TM that we were all promised. Um, and I guess if we, um, if we were to sort of look at it, I guess, from the very long view or, or, or very out of uh, zoomed out, um, it was, I guess, the, the, the point in uh, the, the cycle of the pandemic where uh, – what was probably always inevitable that we would have an outbreak of high numbers of infections uh, occurred. But I guess the unfortunate thing from the Prime Minister's perspective was his 
failure to really prepare for it. And I, I, I know the other day or the other week he sort of said no one anticipated the Omicron variant, which, you know, upon reflection, I think is actually quite an extraordinary comment. I mean, we're, we're living in a pandemic. Um, there's really, it's like a war, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not realistic to expect governments to get every decision right, especially when the wrong decision is pretty catastrophic. But equally, it's sort of beggar's belief that after almost three years of this, that you, you wouldn't think that there might be another variant coming, particularly when global vaccination rates are what they are. Yeah, well, it is really interesting, isn't it, Frank, because um, the government obviously lost a lot of paint in 2020, the federal government particularly in 2020, uh, with the very sort of lackadaisical approach it took to the procurement of mRNA vaccines in particular, um, the you know the purchasing of uh, Pfizer, for example, in, internationally, but other ones as well through 2020, and that's when we, of course, had the famous uh, "it's not a race" uh, excuse offered by the prime minister rather disastrously. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we don't need to reprise all of that. But but you would have thought that, in political terms, at least, that kind of becomes a bit of a near-death experience, and you you know you you're high, if you're the government, you're hyper alert to the risks associated with that, especially as an election looms. So when you come when you when you put it in that context and you get to the end of November going into the summer, thinking about how summer is an optimistic time, thinking about how you're going to be coming out of that summer and going to an election, and thinking about the risks to that, it's pretty amazing to have the best the government can offer is well, no one saw Omicron coming. Yeah, I think a lot of wishful thinking kicked in. Um, I suppose my theory has always been that Morrison was probably looking at an election late last year on the back of a highly successful vaccination program uh, achieved, you know, in a kind of steady uh, rather than racy way over 2021. And of course, uh, that's not how things panned out. I mean, I, I, you know, I suppose my own take on this is that it also speaks to kind of incapacities of federal government. Um, it's easy mm. to blame a particular incumbent and exactly. a particular prime minister. But, you know, again, as a historian who obviously, you know, has, has looked at, at the history of government capacity in different contexts over, you know, more than a century, this, this has been a, a very bad news story. I mean, it suggests that Federal government, um, you know, is is in a lot of ways less capable now than perhaps at any you know, point in the past. I mean, you think of the kinds of reorganisation that have been involved in in prosecuting wars, indeed, in in uh, administering a vaccination program in in nineteen nineteen. It wasn't quite a program, but it was certainly uh, you know a, a, a process in which the Commonwealth was very heavily involved back in the Spanish flu, and quite frankly, they did it more efficiently then than they did this time. So, you know, I think it it, it does speak also to um, you know that that issue of um, you know what is our government actually capable of? Have they farmed out too many of their skills and and functions to the private sector? Uh, it, it's not just, I think, a story of the of the Morrison government, but it will be the Morrison government, of course, that looks like it will carry the can. I think that's a really good point that you that you make there, Frank. Right, and 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 the I guess the the most obvious litmus test of that is that it's the army that is constantly deployed to fix problems because it's one of the few 
domains that the federal government controls uh, people, right? People who and, can and, do and presumably things. it's like a standing. It has a standing capacity the whole time. Unlike many other things, it's it's largely ideally underutilized because we're not in a constant state of conflict or emergency. But that's what it's there for. Yeah, and but this whole thing I think speaks to the fact that we, we, it's a pattern actually, which is that a lot of decisions made about the pandemic have been made through a, a really political lens rather than a sort of public policy or problem solving lens. You know, I mean, uh, we sort of having an echo of a conversation we had about the GP rollout of vaccines. You know, why were why were the GPs selected? Because that was a domain that the federal government had more responsibility for. It means they could take the credit for a successful vaccine rollout, which of course became a, a total shambles. And the Prime Minister sort of said that he regretted not bringing in the army earlier, which I thought, again, was a really curious thing to say, because perhaps the regret was actually not just giving this function to the states who have the capacity and know-how and people to deliver such a thing as a vaccine rollout. It's a really good point too, because that's what, uh, you, you know, this point about uh, having not handed it over to Gen- Lieutenant Lieutenant General uh, uh, John Fruin earlier, or to you know to the army and presumably to him earlier, it was almost it was a Clayton's apology for a start that came at that rather shambolic National Press Club appearance, which was supposed to be Morrison's chance to reframe uh, the, the political debate, reset it, you know, uh, start to, in, in a sense, controlling the agenda as governments like to going into any year, but particularly an election an election year. Um, and he didn't really apologise for a whole lot of things. He spoke about a lot of things that had that had uh, caused uh, umbrage and anxiety in the community, but he didn't really apologise. And so, when pushed to uh, you know to, to 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 be a bit more specific, that was the thing he nominated that he wished, on, in with hindsight, that it should have been handed to the military earlier. And my immediate reaction was, apart from the fact that's not really an apology, was it sort of contained this message that well. You know, eventually I thought of the answer here. I just wish I'd thought of it earlier. Um, and it goes to Frank's point also that is that what we've done now? We've we've so kind of hollowed out the capacity of uh, the, the federal public service to do these sorts of things or to or to do much at all, really. I mean, remember Morrison basically told them a couple of years ago, um, "You're there for service delivery. We do the ideas." Um, turns out they're not there for even the service delivery. Um, and um, it all, it you know, it does speak to this, as I say, this kind of hollowing out of the capacity of government, as you were saying, Frank. Well, yes, there's the army, and then there's the consultancy firms. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, I th- I think um, you know the, the the pandemic has exposed the problem with federal government uh, essentially outsourcing really core uh, functions, core policy making functions. Uh, to to effectively these these companies, um, it, it, it's not working. Um, it's not pr- producing good policy. Um, the, the issue of procurement, vaccine procurement, is a really interesting one. I mean, I speak to uh, economist colleagues here at the ANU, and you know, this wasn't brain surgery, um, but y- you know, th- th- there is a well known sort of series of techniques that can be used that that basically provide kind of hedging in 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 a process like that and and that was deployed in the United States even during the shambolic period of Trump's final year as president quietly those processes were were going ahead 
Uh, here, we seem to have put, you know, all of the eggs in, in one basket um, with, uh, you know, pretty dire results as it, as it turned out. Um, you know, th- th- this is just bad policymaking. Um, and it, it speaks, I think, to problems in the kinds of expertise that the federal government is actually able to, to draw on. Um, the expertise exists, um, uh, often exists quite close to hand. It certainly exists in Australia. But, you know, these, these are recognised areas of, of, of kind of pol- public policy and economics expertise. And the government appears not to have drawn on it. You have to ask yourself why. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's as you say, it's poor policy development, but it's also poor risk management. Um, and and in an in an emergency, risk management is absolutely critical. And I don't just mean political risk management. I mean the danger to the community. Uh, and the thing about Omicron, the first case of it was um, that showed up in Australia. I think it was twenty eighth of November, right? So it took a little while for uh, for that to manifest into sort of serious numbers, and for I, I guess many people in the Australian community to start. You know, really worrying about it as a sort of a clear and present danger, but it had been spoken about for months before that. After showing up in Southern Africa and then in some other places in Europe, uh, and there were real question marks about whether it was more virulent and whether it was more dangerous or le- less dangerous, and much of that was unknown. Um, and yet, it seemed like there was this kind of parallel track of of kind of almost, you know, laissez-faire political debate going on in Australia where we sort of come through the winter and come through the worst of it, particularly the worst of Delta, it seemed, and we had high levels of vaccination. And there was this um, there was this sort of uh, sunny optimism, if I can put it like that, about going into the summer and getting life back to normal and having the economy grow. And this new, this new risk factor that had emerged uh, in the back of our minds, speaking collectively and uh, sort of rolling in the government there, just didn't seem to be taken very seriously. And that's poor risk management. It's poor political judgment, which I think has uh, become a feature of this government, uh, and uh, very poor public health policy. And you don't imagine it would have been the advice of a conscientious front-footed public health department um, were it uh, in a very prominent position in the the decision-making process of the government. Well, it... You know, is it a new discovery that viruses mutate? I wouldn't have thought so. Um, I mean, th- this this should have been factored into policy making from March 2020. Um, mm. But you know, th- as I said, I think a lot of wishful thinking kicked in. Uh, it, it became pretty clear, I think, probably around the spring last year that Morrison had a particular pitch uh, which he was going to take to the next election, which was, you know, Scotty as the great liberator. He, um, he, he was going to free Australians from their bondage and show them how to, to, to live with the virus. Um, but what was the old phrase? To, to stop worrying about the bomb or whatever it was back from the, the old days. Um, mm. And you know, as it turned out, it was a disastrous summer from that perspective. And most of his political problems now actually ha- have arisen from the failure of that narrative, that narrative that I think he is very uh, comfortable with, um, the, the, the idea of, of people being able to, to uh, you know, enjoy the Australian way of life free from the kinds of restrictions that we've all uh, been under in the last couple of years, and some of us more than others, of course. And, and, and that, you know, has, has turned... 
well, thoroughly pear-shaped because of, of, of Omicron. And, and, you know, that, that's the fundamental problem he's got at the moment. Well, that's the thing I find quite kind of fascinating. Like, I, I don't think it's illegitimate for a civilian government to to take a position on, uh, you know, a calculated risk, right, about when to open up society. Uh, what I did find quite bizarre and and it kind of goes to everything you've just sort of both said, which is, you know, like the, the sort of the, the failure to sort of anticipate what would be required to be in place to, to keep the economy open, right? Like, you know, you can criticise the government for taking, you know, in some ways uh, definitely an ideological choice, but, you know, all of these public policy decisions are informed by ideology. We shouldn't pretend that they that they aren't. Um, but then to not sort of, you know, have the, the rapid antigen test system in place as it was in the UK, in effect, which is one of the things that allowed the economy there to stay open for as long as it could and kind of was a bit of a Band-Aid on, like, many of the other systemic problems going on in the United Kingdom. I just – I think that – I think that there's sort of like a, a chronic failure to to learn um, from obvious parallels overseas but also obvious mistakes that we've made here and I just think that's really very interesting and perhaps it points to a level of exhaustion or perhaps it's simply hubris or it's just a disposition, you know, an optimistic disposition um, which makes what seems like um, on paper quite a risky bet in your own mind due to human psychology like a not nearly as risky a bet. I don't know. Uh, look, I think that's an absolutely excellent point. Um, you know, was it exhaustion? Was it hubris? Was it um, uh, a, a failure of imagination, uh, naivety? Uh, whatever it was, you're right. I mean, why why wasn't – if you were going to go down the path that you say, all right, we think we now are in a position where we can sort of build forward looking to a much open, much more open economy and there will be great benefits for this, you would think that you would buttress that with – the, the 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 relevant mechanisms for handling it if your judgment turns out to be wrong if the circumstances change how do we handle it how do we pivot from that instead it turned out that wasn't we were just all in on this idea that uh, it was going to be let let's you know let's let's leap forward into the bold new economy don't worry about omicron it's a bit of a side story it turns out not to be a side story and we've done nothing about getting rapid antigen testing out there and putting in place those systems and knowing that there are going to be kids going back to school families that are going to be facing this uncertainty uh, all kinds of problems with the aged care system and everything else i could go on i'll take a break there uh, and we'll come back in just a moment Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. 
Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, before the break, we were talking, obviously, about the Omicron omni-shambles, I guess you'd call it, the failure of the government to, 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 to really to sort of plan for the contingency of things going pear-shaped. What, what was your description of it, Maria? Oh, I, th- I thought of it as daggy dad planning, you know. She'll be right, mate. We'll just put some gaffer tape on it. She'll float. It'll be good. <laughs> yeah, and it does seem to, you know, there's sort of, there was that kind of, um, yeah, as I say, kind of a, a, a naivety, uh, sort of a simple idea that, well, you know, we're getting through this. I wonder whether what both of you think about the role, just, just, just briefly, the role of the arrival of Perite in New South Wales and his more kind of laissez-faire approach, did did sort of Morrison and, and Perite, obviously the biggest state and and uh, Morrison's home state and, 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 and all of that, do you think they kind of almost egged each other on along a process of of um of sort of, you know, get the state out of our lives kind of thing and, and, and this played a role in Australia not really being as prepared as it could have been for Omicron? It's, it's possible. I mean, you know, there's no real love lost between Dominic Perrottet and, and Scott Morrison. They're from rival factions. It would have been, uh, I guess, the sort of mid-game of what is now the end game of the sort of uh, factional manoeuvrings going on in that state that has seen a failure to pre-select candidates very close to the election. It's been a dog's um, breakfast, hasn't it? I mean, it's- uh, It has been. It has been. I mean, I think, you know, Perrottet very much enjoyed, I guess, burnishing his his credentials and and perhaps there was an element of reaction upon Morrison's part um but yeah but he did I, plenty himself too though to be fair I mean I agree with right. what you've just said but he he was very kind of bullish about getting rid of masks and and uh, reducing the restrictions on Sydney siders just as the bloody Omicron thing's taking off you know he didn't yeah. change course for weeks I mean I, I kind of I it's I guess this is the interesting point, right? With Dominic Perrottet, we kind of know where his views on this matter come from. You know, they they clearly come from his his coherent ideological position about mm-hmm. the role of the state in society. Whereas with Scott Morrison's position, like, is that really what he thought, or is that what was being <laughs> fed back to him in in focus groups, or is it simply just a clear point of differentiation between? you know, Labor, the Labor states and his own government. And that that to me is actually interesting that it's not clear what, what motivated that. I, I think it's, I mean, it's a good question and I suppose my sort of half answer to it would be that think of how Morrison has promoted his kind of image as Prime Minister from day one really. I mean, he unveiled it really in January 2008, uh, uh, got to get my years mixed up here, 19, um, a few months before that that election. And it was the idea of the kind of, you know, carefree Australians, the quiet Australians or quieter Australians, as he called them initially, uh, who, you know, are, are able to quietly get on with the things that they love doing, you know, their SUVs on weekends and, you know, off to the, the rugby league and all the rest of it. I think that narrative of of you know throwing off the restrictions and and living with the virus and and getting our freedoms back was deeply attractive to to Morrison. Um, it, whether we call it ideology or not, I don't know, but I think it, it's bound up within a particular 
persona um, that that he's maintained as as prime minister. And of course, you couldn't maintain that in a, a particularly uh, flamboyant or effective way. You know, when we're all locked down and things are extremely dangerous. But I think when the opportunity arose um, in uh, well, I suppose towards the end of twenty twenty, really, but certainly in in twenty twenty one. He he, ret- you know, he kind of returned or reverted to what was, you know, um, his kind of instinctual way of thinking about himself as prime minister. I think that's a really good point, and and it's it's actually probably quite uh, sort of succinctly put as sort of when we think about the restrictions and the measures that the federal government put in place, that he was late in and early out, that he was quite reluctant when we think about those early weeks and months of 2020. He did eventually. He moved reasonably quickly on the international border, but you know the evidence was was very compelling there. Um, but he was still talking about going to the footy and all of those things that we know about. That that showed that he took some time to kind of get his head around what it was that a national government needed to do and how serious was the threat and therefore the changes that we all needed to make. That government needed to reposition. That Australians needed to be have it communicated to them that things were serious and needed to change and needed to change immediately. Morrison was quite sort of you know slow and reluctant in a, and, and faltering in a number of the ways that he went about that. And the government, for example, we've spoken about this before. Uh, Canberra, at least, you know, the federal government was quite reluctant, really, to talk about masks for a lot longer after other jurisdictions, both the states but also other countries, were very strong on masks, and we just didn't get much coming from from the federal government. And then we look at this, this, you know, we've, obviously we've had some tidiness about various measures in, along the way, vaccines in particular, and then and then this kind of almost rush to come out of it when. Perhaps there's some pretty good evidence, evidence that, hang on, this isn't over yet. There's still some shooting to be done. Um, and, uh, and, and so we get, it, we get into this awkward situation that he finds himself now. And it's, it, it's, it makes sense from a political perspective uh, in a way, right? Like it's a positive narrative. It differentiates himself from, from the carping of, of the left writ large. Um, and the, the, the sort of, um, labor states. But what, what else is kind of interesting about, I guess, that early kind of narrative building around this was that, you know, if you remember, he was sort of trying to have a bob each way, you know, he's sort of, trying to sort of talk out of two sides of his mouth in relation to the people who were increasingly angry about vaccine mandates who were now sort of, you know, camped outside uh, the lawns on Parliament House and various other places in, in, in Canberra. And then, you know, just the sort of, I guess, recognising the sort of fatigue um, that it had set in across the eastern seaboard um, where, you know, the majority of the population had been having a, a rather miserable uh, winter and I guess, and it's a seductive idea, you know, like it's something that you would want to sort of believe your, yourself. Um, and I guess that is the, the downside of having such an optimistic worldview or sensibility because I think that's what you're sort of pointing to, Frank. It's a sensibility that he has rather than necessarily one that comes from ideology, which is why it's malleable and incoherent so often. Yeah, I think it is. I think sensibility is a good a good word for what I'm I'm getting at. Um, it's a sensibility. It, 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 it's you know we we also need to keep coming back to his being um, a, a PR man, um, and and he's about he's a he's a professional image maker, and um, 
uh, I think a, a part of that sort of um, shift towards you know really optimistic emphasis on on opening up and getting back to, to normal life was also you know about a, a certain image of him as a political leader and of his government and of what his government stands for that is is actually very uh, important. It's probably important to him in, emo- in an emotional sense, but it's also just critical to him in terms of, of political um, survival and, and political, uh, um, you know, his political future. I mean, if he doesn't stand for something like that, what does he stand for? I mean, well, what does he, doesn't he stand, stand for? for? He doesn't stand for fiscal rectitude, that's for sure. We know that. No. So he's not, he's, not, no, he's not Malcolm Fraser telling us life wasn't meant to be easy. In fact, he's, he tells us the exact opposite. Life is meant to be easy and I'm going to help to make it easy for you. And... Uh, uh, the, the reality of our lives in the last couple of years is, in fact, for m- many people, they've been uh, other than easy, and he hasn't always been the best prime minister for, for for dealing with that. So, does that mean, Maria, that he's he's a prime minister for the good times? Uh, the trouble is, we're not in good times. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, probably, I mean, I would say most prime ministers are prime ministers for the good times, which is why they fall over when they really the best hit the. Ones. Yeah, when they hit when they hit roadblocks. But I, you know, listening to you guys talk, it makes it makes me think about the the sixty minutes uh, sort of puff piece thing, and it, I thought it, it is was very hard hitting. It was, ex- yeah. <laughs> well, um, in terms of cringiness, sure, it was, yeah, definitely hard hitting. Um, but it does kind of emphasize that after three years uh, as prime minister, well, actually, almost coming up to four, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he is essentially trying to campaign on, you know, trademark Scott Morrison, right? Not his record, not his future plan. He has no record. Well, that's right. Well, he does. It's not a good record though. Um, but there's no big legislative legacy here. We don't see any significant reform legacy. I mean, the debacle last week over religious freedom was or however you want to call it, um, was, you know, unedifying, pointless, took a lot of paint off the Prime Minister and everything else. But, you know, they, they're the things he's most noted for. Parliament is not his friend. Even though government is formed in the House of Representatives, you have to have a majority in the reps to, to be the government or command a majority. Uh, and uh, and yet he hasn't had that. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's a really interesting question as to how we understand this Prime Minister. Did he win in 2019, Maria? For example, because he was unknown but not particularly disliked, and is that avenue just not open to him anymore? For a start, he is known, and although he's not, I don't think we should pretend that he is profoundly disliked in the community because the polls don't show that. They do show Albanese gaining on him quite considerably, almost level pegging on preferred PM in in, in some indexes, but he's he's not, you know, toxic in that sense with ordinary voters. But ordinary voters know this man now and they've had some pretty frank, you know, what I've called them testimonials from uh, we've seen recently, the, the text <laughs> exchanges we've seen, um, you, know, uh, from, uh, you know, from others. Uh, and we've, of course, you know, and Macron, of course, and, and, and you know, around the place. I mean, he is a, he's a known commodity now. So, what, so who is he? What does he stand for? There's no record. And the stuff we hear from the people who know him best is not particularly uh, inspiring. Well, you know, I, I think there's a couple of answers to this. The first one is, right, normally I would say if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. But I guess when you when you are a political figure that has effectively um, 
but come or come to the position you have uh, marketing yourself where, as you say, you have no uh, sort of, I guess, uh, policy legacy and you've only got a management legacy, right? If you're if you're trying to to basically say, hey, I'm still a good bloke, then I do think all of this sort of ephemera around the prime minister's character suddenly does become kind of important. And it's it's I just I struggle to think apart from Julia Gillard, right, where these kinds of questions were so important like uh, front and centre, and I guess it kind of throws up in relief. It's because there isn't a narrative of competence, policy, doing, or a legacy of any kind to to really kind of be able to point to unambiguously. So he is kind of left with, yeah, you know, like the vibe of who he is and and how he kind of feels about things. And, And last week was so disastrous because, you know, supposedly he cares about religious freedom and he sincerely promised to do something for his communities, right, and his people, which he has now failed to do. He also, instead of like really focusing on landing the win, right, and managing the politics within his own party, instead tried to turn it into a political opportunity to hurt Labor, which is completely blown up in his face. And now, what you know, they have to go to the next election saying, you know, they'll, they'll promise sincerely hand on heart to do it again. When, when we have all of these narratives about him and his word, like I just – it's you know it's it's actually a far worse look than I think it 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 appears at first at first blush. No, it's it's absolutely right, Frank. I mean, the ukulele playing was, as Maria said, pretty cringeworthy. Um, it you know I'm not sure what the calculus is there in terms of his PR team, his strategy, his sense of what he's trying to protect project. I guess it is the the sort of every man, the the guy who cooks curry on a Saturday night and sits around with a family in a T-shirt and boardies and, and can pull out the ukulele, whether it be here or in Hawaii, because um, you can pack a ukulele quite well and, and, and scarf her off, uh, national uh, emergency notwithstanding. Um, but the thing that worried me just, and this will probably have to end here, but the thing that worried me, Frank, on, 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 on that whole frame of information that we got wasn't so much that, but the the statement where he says that, um, you know, he, he prays, okay, we know he's a Christian and all that, but he almost wore the carpet out next to his bed in Canberra praying for Australia uh, during the pandemic. And I thought, well, you know, given that we didn't, you know, open our wallet and get the, the vaccines anywhere near as quickly as we might have, you know, the, the, the phrase that came to my mind was don't pray for it, pay for it. Pay for um, it. Yeah. You know, we certainly do that in so many other ways. We've been dishing out money to employers that didn't need it. We've been, you know, handing away money or hand over fist on defence projects, as we know. But, 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 you know, just as a sort of a serious point, Frank, you know, could being that, projecting an image of being that kind of pious, does that really resonate well with uh, Australia, which is still largely a secular nation? Mm. Yeah, look, I I found it interesting last night. I probably wouldn't have watched it unless, um, you know, we're coming to Democracy Sausage today, but I did. Um, and I think you can kind of work backwards from, you know, the, the main emphases of, of the, the whole sort of segment. Um, the strengths that he's clearly playing to are the one you just mentioned, and, and I think it still remains a strength. I mean, my guess is they're 
focus groups are telling them, or the researchers telling them that the, 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 the religious convictions of the Prime Minister remain a positive from the point of view of probably many Australians. They like the idea that, you know, he's not afraid to, to um, you know, to be op- open about his religious belief. And, 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 I mean, I don't know, but I suspect that that isn't a negative for him uh, even now, even in a country that perhaps, you know, likes to think of itself as secular. Um, the good family man image is clearly something that, uh, is is uh, still uh, a commodity, uh, an asset. Uh, it was mentioned, for instance, by I think one of the generally thoughtful um, uh, respondents on Four Corners uh, a, a week ago. You know that that the image of him as a good family man is still believed, and I suspect it is authentic. Um, but what, what's equally interesting, uh, are, you know, it, it's pretty clear they're addressing uh, a number of issues that remain alive for voters, and what the, the the one that really jumped out and hit me in the face is Hawaii and those bushfires. Um, Mm. It's pretty clear, I think, from what we saw last night and the fact that they did address this and they spent so much energy and time addressing it, or rather Jenny did, that um, voters still associate that moment with uh, Morrison's style as a prime minister, the fact that he doesn't hold the hose, the fact that he he went missing and had a holiday when the country was in crisis, um, that that it, it's clear that that has stuck in voters' minds and they do not like it. Um, they they um, you know ha- are holding it against him even now. The yeah. other issues that came through, of course, he's clearly got a problem with, with the women's vote generally, and particularly the handling of those all the issues around you know sexual assault and all the rest of it that have resonated over the last year in in Parliament House uh, and and more generally in the, in the community, and, and the one we've been talking about the pandemic response and particularly aged care. Um, so you know, assuming that they are addressing uh, issues last night that you know are coming through in their research as problematic for the government i found found that quite quite interesting i mean the the idea of your wife doing that work i i think it's it's easy to overlook just how novel last night yes. was in that sense now there's been a lot of nonsense spoken i think in the last few days oh the, they all do it they use their families and all the rest i have never seen a prime minister use his wife as as a kind of political shield like we saw last night. The closest I could come to, and it was a very different set of circumstances, was 1984, Bob Hawke, Hazel Hawke, and the the, the heroin addiction of of one of the Hawke's uh, daughters. It was Rosalind. Um, uh, Now, you know, in that particular instance, of course, they sent Hazel out to the Mike Walsh show, I think it was, to basically explain what had happened to the family. But the circumstances kind of seemed to call for that. Um, you know, you could see why in that situation it would be, uh, you know, that, that a spouse might be sent out to talk about the family. It was midday television and all the rest of it. Quite different, I think, from what we saw last night. But, it, you know, that was the closest I could think of. I mean, the idea of just he kind of sat there in a sort of almost ornamental way while a bunch of questions about really his failures as Prime Minister were directed at his wife. I've never seen that. Uh, well, I wasn't expecting it and I think it's it's worth a lot more attention than it's so far had. Very good I think point. it sort of encapsulates the the inability for him to actually take responsibility, you know, he, that he's now, he's not even doing this job. I just, I just find that, you know, seriously, like it is, it is strange. It's passing strange, Frank, and and listening to you kind of uh, like 
stretch for historical parallels seems to have kind of underlined this um, um, for me. Well, I, I can't think of anything. I mean, I, I recall Tony Abbott, obviously uh, he, his daughters were conspicuous as a part of his attempt to show that he really did get women's issues and understood them well and all the rest of it. Um, but that, you know, was was about a kind of political symbolism. Um, it's quite different from what we saw last night. Um, and, and certainly, you know, the idea of the soft-focused interview uh, with the family, there's nothing new about that. That's certainly that's been right. around for some time. But not what we saw last night. And I think that's that's worth and, – and you're right. I think that one of the ways you could, could read what we saw – is is a kind of admission that that you know he, he he's sort of not not up to it. Um, now I, I'm not suggesting people will necessarily read it that way, but um, it, it does. You know, it had its risks. I think what we saw last night. It'll be very interesting to see how it plays out because, as we know with these things, you, you can't really judge the way they work politically from what you get in the first 24 hours. It simply doesn't work. If, if, if that were the case, uh, you know, the, the, the bushfires wouldn't have been so terribly damaging or Hawaii wouldn't have been damaging because yeah, I can remember exactly. a lot of media coverage at the time, a lot of journos were telling us, oh, look, he deserves a holiday. Every family mm. deserves a holiday. Leave him alone. Well, yeah. that's not how it's turned out and we might find that last night, you know, um, uh, well, one, one of the interesting sort of things prison. about about it, um, we'll have to end there because we are over time, but one of the interesting things about that bushfire thing is that that bushfire point and the discussion of it, the resonance, you know, with the ukulele and Hawaii and the outfits and everything else, um, you know, it comes 24 hours after the bigger by-election where there's an 18% swing against, or 14%, I think, was the swing, 18% swing in Willoughby, but 14% swing against the government. It go, it falls to Labor for the first time ever after I think it was 18 years held by Andrew Constance. Uh, and people down there tell me it wasn't Omicron, it wasn't the, the, the pandemic generally, it was the bushfires. The bushfires is an absolutely huge issue in, in that part of the country and it's probably in, a huge issue in, in the minds of many people and uh, that really just sort of underlines the point this hasn't gone away and uh, you, you could scarcely... You sort of reduce that political crisis down more efficiently than to, you know, re-utter the words, I don't hold a hose, mate, which sort of seems to say say everything. Look, thank you both for what's just been a fantastic discussion. There's a whole range of things we haven't been able to get to, which we will do through the course of the next few weeks, no doubt. Uh, things like the way Albanese is performing, the way he's being framed by the government. We haven't talked about the crisis in Ukraine and, and even not so much from a, from a, you know, what's happening their point of view, but from the potential that a, 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 a big global conflict may have on the impact of, um, impact on Australian domestic politics. Could that change the calculus? Um, there's a range of things going on. So much more we can talk about. We're looking forward to a, a big year on democracy sausage, of course, uh, an election year, always interesting. And, uh, we, we're, we're hoping to get across all of these issues, these issues as we go along. Don't forget to reach out to us. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net. You can join our Facebook group. Just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. We'd also love you to subscribe to the show, of course, and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. So, Maria Tafaga and Frank Bongiorno, thanks again for uh, kicking us off in 2022. Should be a big year. Thanks. Oh, it Mark. will be. Yes. Thanks, Bye, Maria. Mark. Thanks, Mark. Until next week. Bye, Frank. Bye for now.